to episode 61 of the Christian Feminist Podcast on Raising Christian Feminist Kids. I'm Katie Grubbs, and with me today are Sheila Woodruff and Ilea Danner-Grubbs. Uh, we're going to start by introducing ourselves, and um, Sheila's going to get started, and then we're going to let um, Ilea introduce herself because she's new. So, Sheila, why don't you kick us off? All right. Hi, everybody. Um, I'm Sheila Woodruff. I've been on the CFP since we got started recording. It's been about four years, I think. Um I did my master's work in uh, Florida State University with a master's in English literature and taught middle school language arts for a number of years before that. I've been the stay-at-home mom now for, um, well, for the last four years since we moved up to Louisville, Kentucky, and I've got a uh, four-and-a-half-year-old daughter and a two-and-a-half-year-old son, and that they pretty much occupy most of my time. I teach music a little bit now on the side and uh, am trying to keep my migraine at bay tonight <laughs> oh no yeah I'm unfortunate so but this. I think the medicine is working <laughs> oh good well thank you for having a nice conversation with us anyway um Leah how about you um hi I'm Ilea Grubbs I am an educator I te- taught um elementary school I got my degree at Wheaton College in Chicago and uh, taught for six years, mostly third grade, a little bit of fourth, a little bit of second, but mostly third grade. And uh, now I'm homeschooling, stay-at-home mom. Um, I have two kids. Uh, one is just turned five, and the other is about to turn two. So that also takes most of my time. Thanks. And full disclosure, listeners, um, Leah is, Ilea is my sister-in-law. <laughs> um, that's how she found her way to the CFP, and we're super excited to have her. Um, I am Katie Grubbs, and I live in Houston, Texas, where I am an adjunct professor of English at Houston Baptist University. So part of my time is spent teaching English to college students. Um, And then in the rest of my time, I am raising three children with my husband, David Grubbs, of the CHP. We have a just-turned-five-year-old and a two-year-old and a, a baby that is... 15 months old. And um, I also really, really enjoy teaching ladies Bible study at church when I have the time to do it. And we, uh, we especially wanted to share listeners some of a little bit of the family info, because obviously today's point uh, of our podcast today is about raising Christian feminist kids. And as you can tell from our bios, all of our kids are fairly young. Um, So we haven't necessarily been doing this forever, but um, are definitely approaching it with some uh, some ideas in mind and some approaches that we thought we might like to share with you today. But uh, the way we wanted to actually start out, though, is going back into the past a little bit and um, talk about some of our experiences um, being raised and if they if those methods if the if those methods were Christian feminist or not. So uh, the questions we're going to be considering during this time 
were, uh, if we did in fact experience Christian feminist raising when we were kids, if our parents raised us that way and um, how their views or the way they, ways they raised us might have impacted us. So um, Sheila, why don't, you, why don't you get us started there? Sure. Um, so if there are any longtime listeners to the podcast, I've, I think I've talked about my upbringing a couple different times on the show, um, but I was raised in a mainline Protestant home. Um, my dad is a pastor, and so we were very much raised in a strong Christian home, um, and I would not have identified it as a Christian feminist, like that intersectionality point. I wouldn't have identified it as such. Um, until maybe I was in grad school, I think I really started to realize that the things that my parents chose to do and were intentional about, um, really pushed on this idea of helping all people to find, um, their best ability to flourish and grow, which is kind of what we've outlined here at the CFP is, uh, a definition of a working definition of feminism. Um, so like the, the things that stick out to me that were important as a kid were important in forming me as a person and that, um, you know, my husband and I have talked about are important things we want to instill in our kids are things like unconditional love. You know, we obviously were taught that God loves us unconditionally and we were shown um, by our parents. I say we, I have a brother, a younger brother too. And I think that plays a role in things. Um, that, you know, my parents had kids of both sexes that they were raising. Um, but that unconditional love was important and that because of God's unconditional love for us, our parents had the same kind of unconditional love for us and um, that we should also show love to other people. And a lot of their training and teaching along the way was was really a matter of that it was kind of, you know, derivative of the Shema that you would love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and you would love others as yourself. Um, so a lot of the the lessons and, you know, teachable moments um, that we got growing up came out of that. Um, doing our best was an, another important tenant in our family. I think we left the house every day hearing, um, we love you, do your best. And we did both uh, I guess I shouldn't speak for my brother, but um, that was always in the forefront of my mind, whether I was playing sports or participating in some kind of competition or playing my flute um, or doing schoolwork. It was the question was always, is this the best you can do? Um, which I think is important, especially as as a woman now and as a girl growing up, you know, marking myself by my own bar and setting that bar for myself and not making other people set the bar for me was a really great lesson to internalize. Um, I think now my parents were brilliant for setting it that way as opposed to marking me against other people as I went. Um, we, you know, I never heard from my parents that girls should do this or overheard that boys should or should not do that. Um, there weren't like clear gender demarcations in our family when it came to that stuff. Um, and I honestly, like I was trying to remember where I might've heard that in other places, obviously I must have, but I don't even remember having those conversations with my parents. Cause it just, it didn't filter, you know, like that wasn't an important filter in my life. I think largely cause it wasn't enforced at home. Um, you know, other basic things we were allowed to express our emotions, to have them and to say how we felt about things and learn how to, to manage them. And uh, the, the biggest one I think besides doing my best was that my folks really pushed, um, that I would be my own leader and that I wouldn't do what everyone else was doing simply for the sake of doing that. And that has certainly served me well over the course of my life so far. 
So um, to try to keep things moving, I'll pass it along <laughs> to the next one um, to share your growing up stories. Yeah, um, it's funny. As I was thinking about this, I, my mom would never have said that I should be a feminist or in any way made that verbally clear because um, she very much equates the word feminism with like second wave feminism. And, um, you know, growing up in the 60s and 70s, she has a very different view of what that means and the connotations and everything than um, maybe you or I would. And um, I also grew up in a very um, kind of mainstream, Protestant, non-denominational family, um, pretty clear gender roles in the church and in the home. Um, So, I mean, even like... Sometimes there was Rush Limbaugh on with the whole feminazi, you know, accusations and stuff. So that was kind of what I got in in word was feminists are disruption or whatever. But at the same time, um, my mom very much modeled for me what I would consider to be very strong, positive feminist values. Um, She uh, I was raised. uh, She was a single mom for most of my childhood. And so you know, seeing her navigate the world and, you know, be our one parent and, um, you know, everything that, that, that entails, um, teaching us how to, to be strong, to stand up for ourselves and, um, to make our own paths and, you know, all that different stuff that it was, it's funny because she would, she would not necessarily say that she was a feminist, but to me, she's very much a model Christian feminist. Um, in a lot of the, the things that she does, I, um, I would say that I wouldn't have considered myself or even really thought that the phrase Christian feminist was possible until college. And then really even still developing that down the line until I started having kids and started really thinking through some of this, uh, definitely when I was teaching things like that came up. Gender equality is always something that is taught in the education classes along with diversity and um, different aspects of social justice. But until I started looking at how I wanted to raise my own kids, I don't think I really grasped the idea of that being an important thing that I needed to even focus on. It was just kind of an understood, well, yeah, women and men are equal, whatever. But until just maybe five or six years ago, it it didn't really become something that I became really passionate about championing. Um, And uh, several books that I've read and uh, conversations that I've had have definitely made it something that I feel very passionate about now and, uh, and have chosen to emphasize in my parenting. Thanks. Um, I have kind of, kind of my, my upbringing kind of affected me both positively and negatively, maybe in a, in a Christian feminist direction. I grew up um, as one of, uh, initially just one of three kids. I had a brother and a sister, and then much, much later, when I was about 14, we got another baby brother who's about to graduate from high school now. So I'm just, you know, ancient. That makes me feel so old. <laughs> um, <laughs> but um, my, my mom and dad definitely raised us in a very um, evangelical Protestant complementarian household so that I was definitely taught growing up that uh, kind of men and women had different roles. Um, But at the same time, my parents also were very um, 
equal in the ways that they balanced household tasks, for example, so that um, sometimes my dad paid the bills, sometimes my mom paid the bills. It kind of depended on whoever had time to balance the checkbook that week. So that even though um, I got the lessons about the father's the leader of the home and the wife is to help and all of that kind of um, complementarian framework like we talked about in our in our complementarian um, episode and at the same time that didn't necessarily translate thankfully that did not translate to like specific tasks being gendered right so that only dad could pay the bills and mom has just relegated to sweeping or something um so they very much shared all the tasks and um some of the positive things i think that i got for my parents that definitely play into a kind of Christian feminist outlook is that we were, like Sheila said before, we were definitely urged to do our best. Um, we were all urged to do our best. I was never made to feel like by my parents that even though the life they were imagining for me in the future, um, at least if I did get married or would, and have a family would be one of being supportive to, you know, a husband or whatever, that I was never made to feel like that that then meant that I didn't need an education or that I didn't need to be capable in myriad ways. Um, we were always encouraged to all do our best and excel um, to the degree that we were able to do so. Um, and also my parents, um, again, I mean, some might find this weird. I don't know. It depends on how you think about complementarians, but um, perhaps interestingly for very complementarian parents, um, my parents actually told my sister and I that we had to go to college, um, <laughs> that it was basically mandatory for us. Um, though, I guess complementarian, like one of the reasons they, that they wanted us to get an education is because they wanted us to be able to um, help support a family. If we, you know, if we had, um, if we ever had kids or, you know, married or anything, they, you know, they wanted us to be able to have an education because they knew that that would give us more flexibility in the choices of jobs we could get, um, that it would make uh, a wider field of, of opportunities possible for us and absolutely wanted us to have um, something that we were passionate about doing and um, a career we could follow whether or not we ever had kids or a family or even if we did. So um, that was, I always appreciated that. I, I definitely think that, um, and even, and that, that stayed true, by the way, too, you know, as I went to get my master's degree and then went to get my PhD and, you know, we're kind of choosing to continue to pursue these ever more, I guess, difficult degrees. Um, they were always very supportive and, um, and would uh, frequently anxiously ask me, you're going to finish, right? <laughs> when I was working on my dissertation, you know, they were always wanted, <laughs> wanted that for me. Not, not as a, I guess not as like a, they would be ashamed if I didn't finish, but I knew they knew that I would never be happy if I did not, you know? Um, so that was kind of one of the, you know, the emphasis on education and emphasis on doing your best. All those were, were really positive. A few things I think that my parents did that kind of pushed me um, away from some of the ways they did things and, and towards maybe more of a, a Christian feminist mindset is that there were some things in our family that were different for my brother than they were for my sisters because he was male. Um, among them, one thing that used to drive me crazy, and I've said this to my mom, this is not, if she listens to this, mom, have you heard this? This is not a surprise. <laughs> but uh, when I was in, uh, especially in college, it would drive me crazy because there there were different rules for um, my, my brother would be allowed to go out by himself driving um, to get food or to do something um, alone by himself after dark, for example, um, at a later hour than would be possible for my sister or I. Um, if we left the house to go somewhere alone, my dad would be much more likely to say to my sister or I, well, what are you going to do if you get a flat tire? You know, and I would always say something like, I would call you or call the cops if I felt like I was in an unsafe area, you know, I mean, I, so I would get very frustrated by the idea that 
if my brother went out by himself and got a flat tire or whatever, he would be fine. But if it happened to me, oh no, this is going to be a disaster. You know, that kind of, I, 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 I felt frustrated by that. And in retrospect, I think it was mainly just because they feared more for us because they felt like just physically we didn't have the same abilities to defend ourselves. But at the time, as a, as a younger person, I kind of heard that as you're not as capable, you know. Um, and so that was something that I think I always kind of had in the back of my mind. I always wanted to prove that I could handle it and prove that I could cope and that I was capable in it. So, I mean, I guess in that way, maybe it was good for me because it made me a little more scrappy. Um, and I do think that something that Leah said um, is absolutely true for me, which is that I think I have become much more of a Christian feminist since I started having children, <laughs> um, in part because it does force you to think about those ideas in a way that you haven't before. You know, I, I, f maybe, I don't know if this was the moment when I went just like full Christian feminist. I'm not sure. I just remember having a really bad afternoon when my daughter was a baby because I could not find her a summer sun hat that was functional rather than just cute like yes. all the boy hats right I, I feel like i feel like maybe we had a conversation about this leah one time so many or, times or several yeah um all the boy hats would have these big wide brims that were super functional to give shade and all the girl hats yes. the brim would be like sheer or yeah. so tiny that it didn't shade the eye i mean and it and i would just like i almost had a meltdown in babies are us and my mom is saying what's the big deal and i'm saying it's a very big deal how she's supposed to do anything if she doesn't have you know if she's in these useless clothes so you know anyway just things like that that i think have really come more to the fore for me since i started having children and just thinking about how how we want to raise them and um which in before we move on to at the end of the podcast to talk about recommendations and things, we did want to still do um, our usual reading segment in the middle of this podcast. So um, we did look at two articles for this week that we're going to summarize and discuss, and we'll put the links to these articles um, on the website, listeners. Um, so Sheila's actually going to take point first and take us through um, an article in the Washington Post. This article is by um, Leslie Kendall Dye, who is a writer, um, dancer, and mother in New York City. She wrote an op-ed called Dear Strangers, Please Stop Telling Me My Active Daughter Might Get Hurt, which I thought was a wonderful title, <laughs> long though it was. Um, and basically, just very quickly, her her entire tenet is that she's, she's talking through um, describing her daughter, who sounds young-ish, um, elementary school age, I'm guessing, um, who's a very athletic, physically strong, fast, agile person. She jokes about having to put a big red bow on her head so she can see her in a crowd um, and like see her far, far ahead of her because um, she is so quick to keep up with. Um, and she kind of walks through some of the scare quote, dangerous things her daughter likes to do that she, she, um, that Leslie Kendall die that the writer allows her to do um, things like climbing tall fences and jumping high, you know, from, from, <laughs> I, I feel like I need to quote the Superman things like leaping buildings and single bounds, but all, all those things that um, can seem very dangerous when you're a parent and it's your child and you don't want them to break things, um, including arms and heads and stuff like that. So she, um, she talks about how she, deals with that from her own perspective. And then, um, as the title would suggest is having to deal with strangers 
and these people she doesn't know, um, which is what a stranger is, I guess. But <laughs> these folks coming up to her and telling her or telling her daughter in front of her not to do these dangerous things that she's doing. Um, and just how surprised it sounds like she was at first and then how frustrated she has become over time with the policing of her daughter's physical abilities. And so um, she also points out some explicit gendering that some of these strangers try to do to her daughter, complimenting her looks or her clothes. She gives an explicit example that I loved. Um, This was maybe my favorite part of the article. And she says, Quote, when she leaps from scaffolding and lands at someone's feet like a cheetah on the prowl, she's often met with such a pretty face or what a pretty dress that is. What a pretty dress that is. She just sailed five feet through the air. It wasn't the dress that did the jumping. Um, I just thought that was tremendous. That's that's basically the gist of the article. Wasn't it great? Yeah. Yeah. So good. So I, I, this article resounded with me for a couple of reasons. So thank you for suggesting, Aaliyah, I think you suggested it a while back, but, um, my, my daughter is four and a half. She'll be five this summer. And, um, I mean, my husband took a picture of her the other day. We were out hanging out in the backyard and she was halfway up this 40 foot tall tree we have. And I'm looking at this going, I mean, at what point do I worry (laughs) that she's going to get hurt? Uh, the rational side of me is going, I mean, she's pretty high up in that tree. She could really get hurt if she fell out. And the other part of me is going, but she can do it. Like, watch her go. She's doing this really well. Um, and so I can certainly empathize with, you know, Kendall Dye's struggle with that as a as a mom. And I just can only imagine how annoyed I would be if other people tried to start parenting my daughter about her physical abilities. So that's that's a summary. Um, I'm curious to hear what you all thought above and beyond the cheetah passage, which was fabulous. <laughs> I love this article because it, to me, is the intersection of two of the biggest things that we as parents have to address today, which is helicopter parenting and gender roles. And the, the advent of you know, helicopter parenting to, it's probably always been around, but to a new degree um, by other people, not just by our parents, not just by the parents of the child, but by strangers, like you said, by relatives, by church members, you know, anybody and everybody feels like they need to hover. I've had children, I have had parents come and pick my child up or help her in some way at the park when I was intentionally hanging back to let her do it herself. And a random stranger will walk up and help her down the slide after I've said, no, if you can get up, you can get down. You need to work it out. And, you know, and I just stand there and go, well, that lesson is lost now. Well, so frustrating. Yeah. And, and so the, the intersection of that is that it definitely happens more for female children than for males. I, I seriously doubt that that same parent would have gone and picked up my if, if my son if he were at the top of the slide wondering if he could make it down. Um, and I don't know for sure, but I, I do tend to see that kind of thing happen much more for uh, my daughter than my son. Even though he's much younger, He it seems like people still assume that he's more capable than she is in a lot of ways. I, um, I like what you said about it kind of bringing in a little bit of that helicopter parenting thing, because I think my, my husband and I have noticed this phenomenon with all of our kids, um, because they are, we have two boys and a girl, but all three of them are extremely physically adventurous, um, 
and like to you know like to climb and liked especially our middle our middle boy our middle child older boy he likes to, he loves to jump off things and um we've had you know people over for dinner um or he um he's on the autism spectrum so he gets different therapies and has different um, ladies come to the house to do his occupational therapy or or whatever his uh, speech therapy but every time he climbs on something when people are in the house a lot of times i can see the fear i can see you know people getting scared um and i always and and usually what ends up happening is i end up policing myself i end up going and taking him down even though i know perfectly well that he is not going to fall off um because he never falls He's very careful, but when someone else is, is getting a little scared, you know, I don't want that, that person doesn't know him and doesn't know what he's capable of. Um, I don't know that I've, I don't know that I've ever had anyone attempt to tell my daughter that she's, she's doing something too dangerous, but that's also perhaps because I think since she's, now that she's getting bigger, she's going to be big enough to go to, I think, or to climb on things at the playground that are big enough to actually be dangerous because she's just turned five. So, you know, it's been difficult for her in her younger years to take that many physical risks, even at a pretty big playground, because playgrounds are so much safer, <laughs> I feel like, than they used to be. Um, there's padding yeah, on that's everything, true. you know, um, but I, I do think that it is, I thought it was really interesting, that bit that you read, Sheila, um, when she talks about how when people say things to the little girl about her pretty dress, it's almost like they're reassuring themselves that she's still a girl. Yes. Um, which is very frustrating. Um, if only because it's, yeah, it's, it's gendering things like physical courage that need not be gendered and really shouldn't be. Um, absolutely. Yeah. And so it is, it's a frustrating thing. And, um, I, my favorite my favorite part of the article is at the very end, she described a different day when an elderly lady came up when her child was climbing the fence again and she braced herself, the writer braced herself because she thought, Oh, somebody's going to tell me I'm a bad parent again. And instead what she says, the older lady says is your daughter is willful and determined. I wish all children, especially girls were allowed to roam free. May she never change. Yeah. And, that was and it was so great. And the writer talks about almost crying because you know, it's, like she says, we don't need the approval of strangers, but when you constantly feel like other people are questioning your parenting method because um, of the way you're parenting your daughter or son, but in this case, daughter, it must be nice to have a person come up and validate that um, particular type of feminist parenting, I guess, in this case. And uh, I, that was my favorite part. Um, yeah, the, the yeah, bit you mentioned ahead. reminded me a little bit um, <laughs> commercial. It was probably a Dove commercial, but I don't remember do you all remember the throw like a girl commercial where they brought in kids um, and they asked him like throw like a girl, you know, and they'd see this, I think she would, you know, they'd be less younger than 10 really take a strong stance and cock their arm back and throw as hard as they could and then run like a girl. And they're like pumping their fists and just going as fast as possible and yeah, doing all do these things that. like girl. Uh -huh. And then they'd have adults come and do it. And then, and it would be, you know, you know, it, they would, they would use the like mocking way of yeah. throwing like a girl or running like a girl. And I, I think you're absolutely right. in in noticing that those are remarking that those things the author talks about here that reified gender are the same things that we do like over time that take these powerful things that, you know, girls are capable of doing and negates them, turns them into a you know, it's some sort of derogatory comment. And um, that actually is a perfect transition to uh, our second article, which I'm going to summarize now. 
called Sexist Attitudes and Behaviors My Daughters Will Probably Call You Out For. And uh, this is another, Leah's been the supplier of articles for us for this podcast episode because this was another <laughs> one that she found. Um, <laughs> Good job. Awesome. Me. Great job. Um, and this is by a guy um, online whose uh, blog identity is Christian Feminist Daddy. And the website is ChristianFeministDaddy.com. He doesn't give very much information about himself. So I honestly can't say beyond being able to infer that this guy is, I'm going to guess, probably um, probably mainline Protestant. Um, he's clearly, and I'll talk about this in a second in the article, he seems definitely to be of an egalitarian mindset with regard to gender roles um, and is a father of um, several small girls. Um, but he... he uh, he has a lot of different articles on his website about both Christianity and feminism, but this particular article is about the idea of microaggressions, which is something that's been in the news a lot lately, um, and not just in kind of feminist discussion circles, but also to do with race and all different kinds of things. Right. But um, a microaggression obviously being um, the idea of a small action or statement or something that just by itself doesn't really seem particularly harmful. But um, for a person who hears these kinds of things all the time, it can start to wear down and it can start to um, to get a, to, to kind of break the spirit. And so he... Uh, he says that he's teaching his daughters to respond to microaggressions based on gender and um, that it's going to be up to them to respond, um, that he's not going to swoop in, but this is why he's teaching them to recognize. Um, and, he, and he also points out that, um, you know, kids are different and that his, his older daughter is probably, he says, 10 times more likely to call someone out than his other daughter, but that he wants them both to be prepared if they want to address something like a sexist attitude to be able to do that. And he talks about a couple of different things, and I'm just going to go through quick. The first one is, he says, should be obvious, but he talks about sexual objectification, um, teaching them how to um, recognize and counter um, a comment of a sexual nature. Um, but he also points out that there's more than just to sexual objectification than a very obvious sexual comment. Um, so he says reducing, and this is a quote, reducing her to a sexual object is a terrible thing to do, but it is just as dehumanizing to reduce her to an object of beauty. Um, my daughters are more than pretty faces or dress up dolls. And that kind of echoes the language in the other article too, about people always commenting on a little girl's dress or her face or something physical. Um, and that's one of the, the best things I've ever read kind of since I've been a parent and have been reading different things about how to, to inculcate self-confidence in girls is that um, one of the best things you can do for a, a little girl is to compliment her on something that is not physical about herself. Um, you know, her, her smarts or her courage or the fact that she perseveres, you know, things like that. Um, because when all she ever hears is you look pretty, then, she, you know, that's going to start to get ingrained into her mind. Oh, this is the most important thing about me. Um, he also, and this is, by the way, this is what I meant when I said I think he's probably egalitarian, is that the second section he talks about what he calls religious objectification. But um, this is, he says that this is any time um, a, a born-again believing woman or girl is accounted as anything less than a human being, child of God, member of the body of Christ, and contributor to his work for the kingdom, um, it usually shows up as the assumption that a woman is going to submit to her husband without equal and reciprocating submission on the husband's part. Um, that's the bit that sounds very egalitarian because the idea of mutual submission is obviously a big deal um, in egalitarian um, kind of household, I guess. 
So um, as the article goes on, though, I think that um, the writer, he's actually, I think, speaking even more against um, a kind of authoritarian mind, what I would call an authoritarian mindset than a kind of garden variety complementarian mindset. And that he, he talks about particularly men um, kind of just, he says, cherry picking different submission passages to, to, to use to deploy as weapons to kind of reduce the status of women to... Le as a lesser class of human beings basically whose sole purposes are to contribute to the success of men um, you know uh, not just husbands also fathers or you know um, but that their whole the whole idea is that the women woman is only there to um, and or is only valuable in relationship to the man um, and that basically her only jobs are to have babies and make men feel good about themselves that's kind of what he's speaking against when he talks about religious objectification um, and that's something that is obviously less encountered by small girls, um, though it's not like that's absent from their world, those ideas. But I think that the, the, um, the last few things he talks about are probably the most relevant, um, for what we're talking about today. One of them he m mentions is diminutive names, um, calling small girls things like honey or sweetie or young lady. Um, and he says, if you wouldn't refer to an equivalent aged male with a diminutive name, don't do that with my daughter's. Um, I have some feelings about that particular issue that we can talk about in a minute. Um, that was one of the places that I, I found most interesting. He also says that he's teaching them to recognize and um, address daddy syndrome, um, the idea that they um, he doesn't want them to believe that they, they need a protector. Um, you know, they don't need um, some guy um, to come riding in on, a, you know, a white horse and, like, you know, rescue them, but that wants to prepare them to be able to face danger or um, scary moments um, with their own strength. And um, and he also says that uh, that withholding the um, withholding the choice to seek protection or not, he says, is a violation of basic human dignity. Basically, that we you know we should give our kids the choice to ask for protection and not just swoop in all the time fixing everything. Um, and, uh, and then at the very end, he makes a little, a, a very short mention of chivalry, but I'm not going to talk about that because he mainly is linking to something else. So, um, I think that, um, probably for me, and I'll, I'll go ahead and just, I'll say my piece here and then that way you guys can, um, can take the floor. Um, the one thing that was most interesting to me about this is when he talks about diminutive names being a microaggression. And I definitely think that that can be true for, adult women in particular, and I mean, I guess small girls will grow up to be adult women, but that one, w w that was one of the places where I didn't completely agree with him, because, um, maybe this is just because I'm Southern, <laughs> but, um, growing up in the South, everybody kind of gets called diminutive names all the time, and uh, maybe that's not, I mean, maybe that was just, you know, kind of what I encountered when I was growing up, but all the time, you know, you will hear people being called honey, sweetie. Um, it's not even always being said to a girl. Um, so that, you know, you'll hear older women say to small boys, call them honey or, you know, um, sweetheart. So it's not always gendered. And there are actually, he says, if you wouldn't refer to an equivalent aged male with a diminutive, don't do it to my girls. But the thing is, I also hear a lot of times people use diminutives with young boys too. Things like buddy or sport 
or whatever. So there are kind of male equivalents to that. So I don't know. I don't know that I, I feel like that that particular practice is as bad for girls or as aggressive as he seems to think it is. Um, and I wonder what you guys thought about that or anything else in the article. Um, how about Sheila? You want to go first? Well, to your point, Katie, I think the only thing I might point to is the type of language that's used to speak to girls um, or the word, the sort of word. So if you look at those words, sweetie, honey, baby, like the things that girls are usually called are more diminutive than the sort of pet names that boys get called. That's a pretty common argument, I think. So I can see his point. I think that in this article, he, he calls these microaggressions. I think that is the one thing that actually could be labeled a microaggression. I think the others are a lot more overt and heavy handed and like straight up sexist. Um, I see what you're saying. This yeah, particular that makes sense. One. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I don't know. Like, it's not something I'm going to teach my kid to like totally flip out about until she gets to be a little bit older and like, no, you don't need to call me sweetie when I'm 18 years old. Like, <laughs> I'm a big kid. Um, I just, to the, again, to that point, like I have to say to my started with our daughter who's older and then our son has picked this up. Um, when, when someone would say, including us sometimes, you know, like, wow, you're such a big girl or you did, you know, something and use the word girl to describe it. She go, no, I'm a big kid. And just focused on this, like, I want this gender neutral noun to be assigned to me. Thank you. And that's so interesting. Isn't that funny? I have no idea where it came from or why. And I tried very consciously when she was little to not do a whole lot of the baby, sweetie, honey girl, like a lot of that crept in, but she was munchy to me, you know, a different diminutive, but a gender neutral one. Um, so, so I hear what you're saying, having lived in the South for a long enough period of time to say, yeah, not a big deal. I also grew up up North and, um, the switch from moving from the North to the South was a little tricky at times because I would have to not be upset by grown people, especially men calling me honey, sweetie, darling, whatever. But, you know, I took a big breath and said cultural difference and called it good. Which, and I will say, when I think about that, now that you said that, I didn't even think about it. I, I always picture like a grandma saying it. Right. <laughs> which is the usual. But you're right. I, I never thought about that. I, I do think I get more weirded out if it's a, if it's a man. Even yeah. a much older man. And I and you're, I wasn't thinking about it that way. That's a great point. And yeah, I had like, I we, we went to church with like lovely, well-meaning older people who would say that stuff to me and be like, you're not actually related to me. I don't think that's okay. Sorry, Ellie. <laughs> I get you off. Oh, no, you're fine. I was saying, yeah, I totally agree. Like, I think a lot of it depends on the age of the person saying it and also the region that they're saying it in. Yeah, I wanted to, um, there were a couple other points in this bit though I thought like I, this this blog post was so like almost on point for me um and and it's it's a blog like I know it's not anything real formal and I love that he's doing it I think it's a really great start and a really good place to get in and if anybody reads this post I would really recommend that you read some of his other posts to kind of flesh out these ideas that he's toying with it's clear that he's been thinking through this for quite a while and that he's responding back to something that he grew up with. Um, I was telling Aaliyah um, a little bit we got when we got cut off. Um, one of the one of the things that I saw on his Twitter feed at the bottom of his page was that he was responding to that hashtag that's been up in the past week or so um, things Christian women here he was part of a conversation with a hashtag of things Christian men here. So I think he might have grown up in at least a partially fundamentalist um, 
Christian culture because he seemed really personally hurt by some of those things Christian men hear um, and responding back to that on behalf of his family. So um, he's got some really just really great things. A couple of things I wish he had started to get into, um, especially in the religious ob- objectification bit. He doesn't. So he talks about the negative things, but he doesn't talk about the positive um, objectification, like putting women on a pedestal, which often can happen oh, yeah. in religious culture and like the P31 woman, like, you know, this stuff for yeah, women that's are nearly sacred. Right. Um, so I wish he kind of got into that. And then I also wish he'd talked a little bit because I, th- I think this is his background based on some of the other stuff he said, but I wish he talked a little bit about um, modesty, purity culture, like the things that we have talked about on this show that have come out of, um, you know, different, parts of Christian upbringing for better or for worse that he will have to address with his kids at some point. And I think that strikes home for me because like, like I said, in the beginning, I was kind of very, I was definitely raised in an egalitarian household, whether or not anybody put that term to it. I'm sure my dad had that in his head, but none of the rest of us did. Um, but we grew up in that kind of a household. Sorry, I just totally lost my train of thought. Um, we didn't talk about modesty. Like, my parents never policed my dress. Like, I would sometimes get a side eye. Like, oh, you're going to go wear that out tonight? All right, have fun. <laughs> we would not choose that for you, but but never a conversation about it because they wanted me to make those choices. <laughs> and when I, you know, I, I grew up to make better choices. Um, but I was kind of blindsided when I got to college because I didn't have any of those conversations. And I went to a college who's... Christian, like strong Christian group was much more conservative than what I was brought up as. And so I was like really taken aback by the modesty purity culture. I mean, I kissed dating goodbye had come out two years before I went to college. Like all that stuff was in full effect. And I just didn't even know what to do with all of it. And I didn't want to leave all these Christian people that I really loved and thought were wonderful, but also just like couldn't even handle that part of being a girl in um, and like very much a girl, not a woman, right? <laughs> like being a girl in in that culture. So that's kind of where I was on the rest of this article. Leah, how about you? Yeah, I mean, I, I was shaking my head, like nodding my head the whole time because um, a lot of the stuff that you said was stuff that I thought too. Um, I definitely think microaggressions are a huge deal. And like he points out, it's hard to address them because – on their own, they seem pretty innocent. And if you call somebody out on them, you usually get a, oh, I didn't mean anything by it, uh, which can be very frustrating because maybe you didn't. And yet it's still an issue. It's still an incorrect kind of perspective. Um, And especially the one that resonated the most with me was the one you pointed out about um, girls being an object of beauty and kind of starting this idea from, I mean, day one, of a girl's life that they owe to the world to be beautiful. And, you know, that every time you see them, the first thing you do is compliment your dress or their dress or compliment their hair or their face or their eyes. I can't tell you how many little preschoolers at the school I taught would come in with their arms stretched out. Like here I am waiting for all the teachers to compliment them because that they knew that was the first thing that was going to happen when they walked in the door in carpool. And it became, it was like a catwalk for these kids to walk in the door from their car and see four teachers going, Oh, you're so beautiful. And, and we, we talked about it. They, the teachers and I, we, you know, we talked about it. Oh yeah. We've kind of dug our own grave there because now they expect it. So I, I definitely saw that. I think the, um, 
what you both said about the diminutive names is is true that there's a lot more that goes into it i think depending on where you're from i use diminutives with every child um especially if you're a teacher you're with them all day there's four you know of the same name in your class uh sometimes it helps to say sweetie just come here instead of you know joe p or whatever you know trying to remember whose last name is what and all that Um, but at the same time i do understand uh, a grown man saying it to a young girl is different than a teacher or an older woman or something like that. There are different contexts in which I think that's more appropriate than others. Um, and definitely depending on the age of the person being addressed, I think that makes a huge difference too. I do wish that he had gone into other microaggressions. I was really kind of hoping when I started reading it that he would address different ones than he did. Cause like you said, a lot of the ones he addressed are almost just straight up aggression um, especially the like religious and you know sexual objectification, like that's pretty much just aggression. Um, but other ones like um, assuming color choices when you're handing out plates. Oh, you want the pink plate because you're a girl, or um, going to the dentist and oh, here's a fairy sticker for you instead of a robot sticker because I know you're a girl and you want the fairy sticker. Or, um, you know, a hundred tiny things that they hear all day that teach them if you want to be a girl, this is what you do and this is what you like and that kind of thing. That's the, those are the kind of microaggressions that I always look out for and try to kind of react to. Um, but, um, but still, I think that any, any article like this, any posting like this is a good place to start because so often I feel like we don't know what to do in that situation. We don't know what to do with microaggressions because they seem innocent and they seem normal. And it happens so often that we kind of get numb to them if we're not careful and it becomes the drip in the bucket over time that just never stops. And it conditions our children, I think, a lot more than we know. So, Oh, man, um, books, teacher to teacher, right? Like yeah. we were both teachers. The the books that are recommended to girls versus yes. recommended to boys and the, the series that kids should read. And yes. like I would have moms, you know, I taught middle school. I'd have moms and say, my, my son won't read. What do I get him to read? And I'm like, Ugh. I mean, I want to tell you, you should have him read adventure stuff and blah, blah, blah. But really, he needs to read good books about people doing interesting things, like whatever that is. And here is a list of them. Encourage him to try to do some of this. But like by middle school, I'm not going to say it's too late. I don't think it's ever too late. But it's going to be hard to get him to read one of these books anywhere but at home in his room with the door shut. Right. It's ingrained. Yeah. 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 I mean, I would say even by grade school, it's ingrained. Like, uh I mean, first graders will tell you, you can't read that. That's a girl's book. Oh, yeah. Oh, man. Yeah, that's really hard. I mean, I read all the Babysitter's Club books because when you were in like 1993 and you were in third grade or whatever, that's what you did. And every time I read one, I'm like, these are so terrible. Why do I keep reading these? Right. And it took me until I think sixth grade to find like science fiction and to delve into this world of people doing interesting, adventurous things and having internal conflict. And like, why are all these books about boys? Like, where are all my girls at? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. It's not a new and I, you know what you said about modesty too. I think is a huge issue. Policing girls' clothing so much more than boys, and expecting them to be responsible for boys' reactions to their clothing. I mean, I I grew up in a, a household and a culture and a church and a school and everything that was very much focused on, you know, girls are a distraction to boys if they're not wearing shorts that are two inches above the knee. But to this day, I still like kind of is this going to be offensive if I wear mid thigh shorts? Because that's what I was taught for 18 years, you know? Um, And that kind of, you know, microaggression over time, it it does make a mark, you know, it does kind of 
and I mean, we could get into a whole different podcast about how that, you know, is the very beginning of rape culture and the idea of victim shaming and, and all of that. But it starts when they're little and we tell them, you know, they have to wear the hats with the frills because it makes them look cute as opposed to emphasizing functionality, you know, and they have to make sure that they don't tempt boys by wearing mid-thigh shorts or, you know, whatever. Which, by um, the way, is really is really mixed messaging, too. You should look pretty. Okay, but don't look too pretty. Yeah, because, absolutely. Like, I'm, right? If you if the whole time they're tiny girls, we're, like, you know, putting them in frilly hats and, you know, like, tiny string bikini when yeah. they're, like, four because we think it's cute, yeah. but then they turn 12 and suddenly it's not okay. That does not make sense. Right. It's not, no, you know, absolutely. Yeah, it's not consistent. I What you were talking about, too... And I didn't think about that, but you're, I think you're right. I think the type of maybe microaggression that I see all the time more is, like you said, assumptions about what the kid is going to like based yeah. on gender. I think that's probably the most, the most common, which um, sometimes, and I, and, 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 and by the way, correcting these things, I think doesn't always have to be confrontational. So oh, like, sure, as, sure. as soon as we're leaving the doctor's office and the nurse says, do you want the, if she says like, do you want the princess sticker to my daughter? You know, usually what I do is I, then I look at my daughter and I go, which one do you want? Do you want there's, you know, princess and, you know, mermaid and Ninja turtle. Like I'll read them right. all to her cause she can't see them. They're too high. Right. Right. Like, yeah. Just stuff like that. Like I don't, nec- I don't necessarily need to take that nurse to task. Like, you know, sure, cause sure. lots of little girls who come through, maybe they do prefer the princess, whatever, mm-hmm. you know, sure. but just making sure they know there are other options. I, I just, mm-hmm. I remember getting kind of in arguments a little bit with my mom and sister when my daughter was a baby, because I very consciously was trying not to, completely make her gender neutral but I was trying to you know show her all the options of things that she could like or whatever and they would you know say what's the big deal it's just like like my mom was women put hair bows on my baby like or headbands with like frilly bows and you know and that's fine like a lot of people enjoy that but she hated them and she would pull them off so it wasn't even that I was trying to raise my kid to be gender neutral or anything but I just wanted to give her options so that I wasn't always presenting her with pink and purple things, but rather giving her the full rainbow and giving her the opportunity to choose for herself um, what she wants. And sometimes, you know, she might make a gender typical choice. Like recently she's right. decided that her now her favorite color is pink. It used to be orange. That makes me a little sad, but that's her choice, right? Like, right. you know, if what she decides she wants is the pink frilly thing, then okay, at least that was her choice. And she didn't pick that because I've conditioned her from birth to choose that, you know? Right. Um, and well, so and the, the thing to ask is why is pink your favorite choice now? You know, is that because of what she's getting at school or at church or, you know, with friends that's saying, oh, well, pink is a girl color, you should like pink, or... That's true, I should ask her, I hadn't asked her up to this point. I do know that she, like, she wears to wear dresses every every day now, and I do think that is because her little friends at church, they uh-huh. don't tell her to wear a dress, but they always do wear dresses. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it is like a, like a, I want to be like everybody else, which in her is possibly maybe a good sign, because thus far she's mm-hmm. been a kid who's pretty indifferent to the opinions of other kids, like mm-hmm. almost aggressively indifferent. So I'm kind of <laughs> glad she wants to be friends enough to try to want to look like her friends. Um, right. But that's a whole other issue. So um, let's move on to our last bit because um, time is getting away from us. So we're doing, listeners, we're doing a little bit of a different thing with our passing on section this this week. Usually we all just give a brief recommendation um, of something to check out later. But 
Um, instead, what we're going to do this week is um, a little bit of a lengthier segment where we're going to talk about, we've, we've been discussing a little bit of the theories and our, our backgrounds and some of this ideology of how to raise Christian feminist kids. But um, now we're going to just get a little bit more practical, maybe a little more specific about how exactly are we raising our kids, our specific kids to be Christian feminists, um, and uh, talk about some more specific, I guess, ideas that we're trying to pursue, or even specific things like books or movies or things that um, have been helpful to us. So um, let's kind of move into that segment, and this time we're actually going to start with Leah. Yeah. Um the number one thing that I would say is that a lot of raising feminist kids comes down to examining your expectations. If you expect a girl to do things that are stereotypically girly, they're going to conform to those expectations. They're going to sense those expectations. Um, if you expect your boy to be you know, daring and brave and you expect your girl to be feminine and quiet, those expectations, even if you never verbalize them, are going to come out. They've done studies that show even parents from when their children are born, let boys cry longer because they think they need to be tougher. Um, so, you know, constantly, I'm constantly reevaluating my expectations and making sure that, um, would I say or do this to my child of the opposite gender? Um, even little things that I say, like, be careful. Would I say, be careful if my son were doing that semi-dangerous thing or would I assume that he was capable um things like saying don't be bossy well would I see it as bossy if my son were doing it or would I think that it was strong leadership skills um things uh saying you're okay if they fall and get hurt um you know am I just saying that to my son because I want him to be tough or yeah I try not to say that at all because I don't think it's very empathetic but in general kind of always watching what I say to make sure that um, like Sheila was saying, using the word kid instead of the word boy or girl to talk about, you know, you're a strong kid or you're a good kid instead of saying you're a strong girl and qualifying it, you know, um, those, I mean, that's, that's a way that we can combat those microaggressions that kind of constantly tell them what we expect and how it's different for boys and girls. Um, and I think other microaggressions like toys, you know, how many gender specific toys do we have, you know, pink and purple Legos instead of primary colored Legos or um, even pastel colored rattles versus primary colored rattles for babies. You know, those are little things that seem harmless, seem cute, seem perfectly you know, innocent. But if that's what they get from day one and that piles up, then it accumulates into this expectation of, you know, boys have the normal colors and the, the kind of default colors and girls have the special set of everything, you know, the, the different because they can't have the regular Legos and um, just that that constant differentiation when really children play pretty much the same until puberty. They, there's not that much difference um, based on a lot of the studies and and things like that. Um, like we talked about before, color choices, um, things about you know, what we let them wear. You know, do we put them in, do we put the boys in play clothes and the girls in fancy clothes to go to the same event? Um, do we dress the girl up like a doll, but let the boy wear what's comfortable, that kind of thing? Um, <clears throat> I think, you know, we just have to keep evaluating our own attitudes and practices, um, making sure that we aren't assuming that, you know, they want something. And, I, you know, it goes for boys too. I mean, we want to raise feminist boys, not just feminist girls. So we want to make sure that 
we're not assuming that the boy always wants blue or always wants the the robot. Maybe the boy wants the princess sticker sometimes. Um, we need to be sure that that we give all of our kids the, the room to be themselves and to um, actively challenge the assumptions otherwise. There's several times where I've already had to step in and say colors are for everybody. Um, when another child will say, well, here's a pink plate for you because you're a girl or here's a pink whatever it is. Um, and, and it's funny, you were talking about um, your daughter wanting pink now. Um, my daughter often chooses pink because it's the closest to red, her favorite color that is available to her um, in, in whatever girl, thing, if it's a dress or something, she'll choose pink, not because she wants to be girly, but because it's as close to red as she can find. Um, That's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> but um, but I was going to recommend a couple of um, books. Um, Parenting Beyond Pink and Blue is the number one that I recommend for anybody that wants to look at um how gender affects children and parenting. Um, also, Redefining Girly is a fantastic one. And um, Melissa Warren, I believe, is the author of that. And she has a website and a community, Facebook community, kind of online community um, called Pigtail Pals and Ball Cat Buddies that uh, really emphasizes raising children who are, I don't even think she would use the word feminist as much as just equal. Um, giving them equal opportunities, giving them equal access to toys and clothes and books. And she started her own clothing line of um, more just kid-friendly clothes as opposed to girly clothes. Um, and then, of co- course, um, Cinderella Ate My Daughter is Peggy Ornstein's kind of perennial classic on the subject. Um, Mighty Girls is another great online community that focuses on uh, women in history specifically and uh, then and now who are doing things in fields of STEM, you know, like, you know, Malala, any, any um, brave women and young women and girls who are role models as far as taking action and not just being another pretty face. Um, and, and it helps me to have those things like on my Facebook feed or if you're, I'm not on Twitter, but if you're on Twitter, so that I'm constantly seeing it um, so that it becomes a part of my life and it just naturally spills over into my my kids daily lives and I'll say oh look at this picture that I found of this woman scientist she discovered this you know and things that I was never taught in school but seeing them over and over in my feed if I don't know if you're like me check Facebook multiple times a day um, kind of having that be more normalized um, has helped me normalize it for my children because I, I think that that's one of the big keys is we need to normalize feminism and make it not unusual make it the norm that everybody, you know, assumes that boys and girls are equally capable and equally, um, you know, able to choose what color they want and what, you know, that they're not born wanting pink or blue or whatever pastels or primaries, um, but that each child is individual and has individual needs and, and desires. And I think the more that we make an effort to just make that a part of our everyday life in every way that we can, the more the kids will grow up just assuming that's normal. And then they'll take it a step further and be even more proactive as they get older. Um, so that's some of my ideas there. I think that's a really good point. I love that idea of putting things in your feed. Like I need to go and find a mighty girl and like it now. I love the website and I use it all the time when we go to the library to pick out books for us to read. Yeah. Um, I always have like, here's mommy's books. What are you getting? Okay, great. We're also getting these 15 ones that I picked out. Um, <laughs> they're great recommendations for all ages and all kids. And like you said, we don't want to raise just Christian feminist girls. Like we want our, our boys to know these things too and to be aware of um, equality and respect in the world 
across borders. Um, I, I was thinking as you were talking like through the, especially the toys and the colors and things like that, I was remembering how vigilant I was before our daughter was born about like, I don't, I'm not buying her anything girly. And if other people are going to buy her pink stuff, that's fine. But like, she's getting things that are, um, either gender neutral or like specifically pushing hard the other direction just because like I, that was important to me. And I'm realizing now that she's almost five and yes, making a lot of choices herself, but also people buy her lots of things. Most of the things people buy for her are a lot more feminine. Um, and she may or may not choose to wear them. She has more clothes than this child should have, right? Like (laughs) more, (laughs) more things than she needs to have in her closet. Um, and I'm like usually tickled with what she puts together because it really demonstrates who she is as a person. But sometimes I look at stuff and just go, I wish that wasn't in there. Why have I not taken that out of the closet? Right. But she deserves to have that choice too, maybe, right? I think. Sure. Like, those are the things. <laughs> right. Like those That's are so the hard, things that I'm struggling with. It is. Yeah. Like I want her to make choices just like my parents let me wear questionable outfits out on dates as a teenager. Like I want her to be able to make those choices too, starting, you know now well before then but I'm finding that in letting her make choices I'm also I feel like I've lost a little bit of that vigilance and so I um that was a word that the author of the first article we talked about tonight used at least once if not twice in her piece and I thought you know that's a really good word like we need vigilance not in securing their identity but in like or shaping their world necessarily, but in seeing what's coming at them and helping them learn what to do with the stuff that comes at them. That's so true. I think media literacy is, I mean, absolutely tied mm-hmm. into this, that they need to be taught how to filter yes. because it's not something that comes naturally. You know, no, nobody in the history of humanity has ever had to do with, deal with the media the way that the kids now have to deal with the media. Yeah, I don't want to think about years from now and what that's going to look like. So, um, I guess I I can, I think it's my turn to talk a little bit about some of our strategies and I feel kind of like the blind leading the blind, you know, like I can tell you what I'm doing. I don't know that I would necessarily prescribe it for other people to do. And I feel like I have a lot more questions and things that I'm grappling with maybe than like, here are things we do and they seem to be working because, you know, our kids are four and a half and two and a half. So what do I know? Um, But apart from the things that I mentioned at the beginning of this podcast that I know my parents tried to instill in my brother and I, like a lot of that carries over into what I hope, you know, my husband and I can instill in our kids. Um, I've I've read a couple books, the ones I would recommend. I'm actually kind of leaning more in the like Christian direction rather than the feminist part of this intersection. But um, because these are the books that have stuck out to me, but one is called Grace-Based Parenting by Tim Kimmel. I don't know if either of you are familiar with that one. Oh yeah, that's a good one. I yeah. That one um, I, I just, you know, I come from a United Methodist background. Grace is a really important part of, of living and I don't do it well, but I'm, you know, strive daily to do it better, I guess, and pray for that. But I, I thought his book was um, a nice practical discussion of how to be a grace filled parent. Um, and I find myself struggling with that more and more these days you know, as both of our kids become more independent and are asserting their own will and authority into situations, um, giving them the grace to do that and still maintaining appropriate boundaries and like that, when do I be the authority figure versus when do I be um, a person, when do I discipline versus when do I be full of grace and 
how do I teach through discipline versus being some kind of authoritarian, which is not, you know, the goal that we're reaching for in our, in our family. So I thought his, I need to get back to that book. It's been a while. So, but that was one that really struck me when I first read it. And the other is, um, love and logic a little less so, but I, that's by, um, I think the fellow's name is Jim Fay and, um, there's one for toddlers, and then I think there's one that kind of encompasses through adolescence, and they're the same idea but slightly different. But the, the gist of it that I took away that I agreed with um, basically is around giving your children choices and from a tiny age setting up the choices for them so that you're okay with both of the options, obviously, but helping them see whatever the problem is or the question is, helping them frame the question and then frame the options and then letting them choose what their solution is. Um, I think it's just a really helpful way to think through things for anybody, regardless of who you are. And it's, I don't think it's necessarily a Christian book, but um, it seemed to jive. Okay. With the grace based parenting book that I talked about before. Um, So the ones you might be interested in reading just to kind of see how you fall with that. Um, I'm trying to, look through some of my notes. There's so many things that I want to talk about, but there's not time for all of it. I guess a couple of questions that I had for y'all, and I don't know, I know we're running long probably, especially with some of our technical in and out here, but um, I was just kind of curious if, if you guys have similar questions about this you know, difference between when you're disciplining um, as an authority figure, like how much are you training your kids to respect authority and I'm using air quotes here versus like listening to their inner voice. And like, I'm going to throw out the Holy spirit. They're a little young for it, but I want them to hear this like inner voice of conscience and eventually recognize that this is like, this is God talking to them (laughs) in their, in their best moments. Um, I don't, that's something I'm dealing with a lot now and curious how other people are dealing with. And also this, it's come about a lot on social media lately, scary mommy and stuff like that. Um, Forced apologies or mandatory apologies and mandatory forgiveness as a, as a Christian, um, kind of where you all are falling with that and how um, you're working with your kids in those areas. If you want to share and it's fine, if not, it's really personal stuff. And then similarly, like mandatory sharing, right? Like as Christians, I feel like these are some things that we're really strongly encouraged to do. Like you forgive 70 times seven and, you know, we're, we're called to like bless other people with the wealth that we have. So, um, I don't know, just kind of curious about those things. Um, those are really interesting questions. Um, and not least because I think some of those things are also informed by gender, so that I, I think probably um, our girls get point. more, yeah, I, th- I think our girls get more rhetoric about sharing maybe even than boys do. Um, because if a girl doesn't want to share, then she's being selfish and mean. But sometimes if a boy doesn't want to share, he might be regarded as having like, oh, he's got a nice, strong personality. Um, good for him, you know, um, that kind of um, that kind of difference. But um, I just, and this is, again, like you said, this is just totally personal. Um, I don't love the idea of mandated sharing, um, and apologies and forgiveness, particularly not when it's couched as a, they should be made to do these things because those things are Christian, because let's be honest, our very tiny children are not really Christians. Right. I mean, they're, you know, they, they haven't, if they haven't, um, 
come to faith. <laughs> they're just in, they're with us in church because we, we brought them there. I think it's kind of unfair to expect, you know, them to give a heartfelt apology. Um, and it seems a bad idea to teach them you should say you're sorry, even if you don't mean it, because that might just yeah. teach them hypocrisy. Um, I don't know. I, I, I'm very uncomfortable with that. I, I, and, and I haven't really even t started talking about some of those things yet. You were talking about authority, too. Like, I've realized, um, and, and this is probably going to come out when I give my recommendations, too. Um, David Grubbs and I are very much not, like, method parents. Um, we're not, like, kind of, I guess we don't, we haven't read a lot of parenting books. We're, we're, we don't tend to kind of, um, we're just kind of, like, not ad hoc parenting that sounds terrible but I mean we kind of pick different ideas we hear and we kind of go with it so I haven't thought about that in a very systematic way and by the same token though what that means is we haven't taught our daughter in any kind of systematic way this is how you should respond to authority so I don't actually know that she, it's entirely possible I never thought about this before it's entirely possible that she might not really know how much she is supposed to defer to or respect the commands of authority figures besides my my husband and I um, I know she, you know, I, I think we, we've, you know, encouraged her to, um, to be obedient if we're in her presence, but we actually haven't talked to her that much about when we're gone. And, um, but I definitely think you're right that it's important to talk about how you shouldn't just obey every time a grown up tells you to do something because not every grown up is the same and not every grown up has the same motives. And um, I think it's maybe especially important for girls too to encourage girls to listen to that kind of inner voice of, am I comfortable with this? Is this something that squares with my beliefs? Because I do think also that girls are socialized to play nice more than boys. Um, absolutely, absolutely. To smile, get along, please people. Um, and so it's especially important for them, I think, to know that it's okay to say no. And I think one way, one thing we do, one way we do that with our daughter is that I don't make her, um, necessarily, I don't make her respond effusively to like strangers who want to talk to her. Um, people try to chat us up in stores all the time. And most of the time it's totally fine. Usually what happens mm -hmm. is people see us out and they'll say, oh, your children are so beautiful. And that's like the extent of it. Sometimes people want to talk to her. And I got a little frustrated the other day in a store because there was a, a man who um, who happened to be a police officer. This was not why I, he was kind of jerky. I, most police officers are great. But this man who happened to be a police officer came up and was um, tried to talk to my daughter. She doesn't usually talk back because she's very shy. Um, but he almost seemed annoyed. Um, and he said something like, aren't you going to talk? And I got a little angry and I thought, and not just because you're a stranger, are you really going to antagonize my child this way? But I, I do wonder, you know, I don't know. I mean, if she'd been a little boy, I don't, maybe he would have said the same exact thing. Maybe it was, that's just the kind of person he was, but I was felt very frustrated and angry for her in that moment because she's, you know, barely five and here's a grown person. She has to lean back to look at him and he's saying, aren't you going to talk to me? And I, it, I, it makes me very, very, it made me very upset. And so, you know, I think that um, some parents would have made her talk or, you know, tried to make her play nice, smile, get along, like, you know, and I think it's really important. And, and that's, by the way, that's also tied up with all kinds of other things to do with consent, right? So that, you right. know, if we teach them that they always have to say, talk to strangers, if they always have to let 
random family members of the family reunion that they've never met give them hugs and kisses, right? Whatever. Right. That yeah, right. I mean, and that's a, could be a whole another podcast episode. Um, you probably should be. Yeah. Probably should be. Yeah. Um, but so yeah, I try to you know I try to do that. I try to um, you know I try to respect her physical her physical boundaries and um, you know, and I think we're doing a fairly good job of that, if only because you know she will sometimes like ask to be tickled for example you know um but we're not going to like push that interaction on her if she doesn't want that you know um i think some other important stuff for us that that we've kind of been trying to do um is and i and this is going to sound kind of strange um but because i'm not a huge parenting book person i haven't read as much as i should have um probably one of the biggest influences on the way that i've been raising my daughter and i'll be trying to raise my sons as they get bigger on how I think about that is um, actually Dorothy Sayers. Um, we podcasted about Dorothy Sayers' essay, Are Women Human, a while back. And I feel like that essay um, and her ideas about that has, has made a huge impression on me because I think that's the way I would really like to frame with my kids as they're growing up to turn them all into, you know, people who have more of a feminist mindset is that you need to treat everybody you come across, man, woman, as a human person, meaning as an individual. So that you shouldn't say to your friends, you can't do that, you're a girl. You shouldn't wear that, you're a boy. Well, no, that person is Lily or Jim, right? Everybody's an individual person and should be allowed their individual preferences. Like Leah said, colors are for everybody, right? You know, so that they should be respecting the individuality of other people and not categorizing those people based on gender, not assuming preferences or, or whatever and I think that's what we tried to do with them and hopefully they'll then turn that outward and they'll do that with their friends and with each other with their siblings growing up hopefully that was again like you said Sheila my, my kid just turned five I think all of our daughters are the same age maybe um yeah just about <laughs> so and by the way listeners um when we post the link to this episode when it goes live on our facebook page please chime in the thread if you have older children if your kids yes. are like elementary school teenagers and you've been christian yeah. parenting them for a long time please share your wisdom with us because yes please we would, <laughs> we would love to hear how to deal with that next stage i'm a little terrified <laughs> um of the next stage um so that's that's the biggest thing for me is just teaching them to to think of everyone as as human, not as you're a girl, you're a boy. So this is what that means. And one other way we do that, and I will say this is not for everybody. I totally get it. I totally understand why most people don't do this. But this is one reason that we don't actually find out if our kids are boys or girls when they are in the womb. Um, that's one of the reasons we made that initial choice with our first kid and have kept doing it to not find out the gender of our children is in part because to a certain extent, the minute people find out what the baby is inside of you, then those people, it, they start putting their gender expectations, like Leah said, on your baby in the womb yeah. and want to buy the baby things that might be very gender stereotypical or whatever. And you can stave that off for a time <laughs> if you don't know what's coming. And right. um, and also, um, we, we really like that too because that meant definitely with our first, I mean, our boys, all their stuff, big stuff is hand-me-down from her anyway but when I was pregnant with my daughter that also meant that um we got to choose all gender neutral like car seats and strollers and all that stuff and nobody says anything said anything to us because we didn't know you know so it also just cowardly we didn't have to deal with people saying but you're having a girl why is your stroller green whatever you know like we which I totally did have to deal with I right I know yeah you totally did because yeah because Leah knew yeah the, 
Molly was and I actually had a note in my shower invitation that said, even though I'm having a girl, we're doing a yellow and blue theme. Please don't buy pink things. That's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> Good job. It's, it's great that you, you know, were able to, to be upfront about that. Because sometimes I think, too, these gender expectations on kids, they get reflected kind of onto the parents. And sometimes maybe the parents don't even want it. But it's just, it feels like there's this weight or this inertia of public opinion just kind of starts to bear down and... um you know, um, so yeah, it's, I think those are some of the things and just a few specific things. I don't have any books. Um, but I will say, um, that a couple of the, th- some of the things that we like to do with our kids, um, to encourage them, um, some of the things that we like that, that they like to watch that we encourage that liking. Um, one of them is the Backyardigans series, which is a oh, Canadian yeah. series, um, that then got put on Nickelodeon. It's been over for a while now, but I think every episode's on YouTube. And you can find collect- DVD collections on Amazon for like $5 for four episodes each. But we love that show and we love for them to watch that show because it is a mixed group of kids, um, three boys, two girls, though technically they're all animals. So, you know, there's like a penguin and a hippo. And um, But <laughs> um, <laughs> Uniqua is a creature, my, my daughter calls her, because her species is indeterminate. But they're, um, they're, you know, two girls, three boys. They have all kinds of play pretend games and everybody takes turns playing all the roles so that sometimes the girl is the you know is in a more supporting role if they're playing like a spaceship sometimes she's the navigator but sometimes she's the commander like they all take turns sometimes you know the boys are going to be in charge of the pirate ship but sometimes they're not and everybody takes turns so that it's um super creative fun play that's very free of restrictive gender stereotypes um it's so good and um, also has the additional fun thing which is not to do with gender but that every episode is um, scored to a different type of music so that one episode might be garage rock and one episode is Rossini opera that's really cool it's amazing I didn't know that Um, and yes and all the dance moves were motion captured um, from real dancers so that also like in there if there's an episode and it's ballet all the ballet moves are right like, I mean, it's amazing. I can't, like, I'll never stop talking about the Backyard Against because they're great. Um, another thing that we really like to do, too, is um, we don't have many books in our house that are very gender-specific either. So that, um, you know, all of our, we don't, you know, we don't have, like, and I'm sorry. And listeners out there, if you like these books, I'm really sorry. I'm going <laughs> to There's this book series called Pinkalicious. Oh, yeah. Yeah. The little girl who wants everything to be pink. It drives me crazy. And sometimes people give us the Pinkalicious books and they get donated every time because I they it's it's that it's the stereotyping. And, you know, and I mean, they're not they're not terrible books. The things that happen in the books aren't even that gendered. But then everything's pink. And so, you know, it's not cool. Um, I also tried for a really long time to avoid Barbie's. But somebody gave her a Barbie and she liked the Barbie. And then she decided she wanted another Barbie. And because I've decided we're going to let her make her own choices, then, you know, right. we have, now we have like three Barbies, but, um, so yeah, Backyard Against is great. Um, and one thing that I haven't actually, we haven't, I haven't purchased anything yet because I just found it, but there's this amazing company called Primary, um, which is actually a clothing company for kids. Yes. I have seen their advertisements. Okay. Oh my gosh. So basically the primary company has like basic kids shapes of clothing, like classic t-shirt or a baseball tee shorts skirt but everything on their website is completely solid colored in every yes. color of the rainbow so, so great. there's no, 
yes, there's no characters, there's no words, um, you know, there's not like that, there's no boys and girls section really of the website, there's kids uh-huh. section. And so it's very much what does your kid like purple? Here's a purple shirt. <laughs> so great. Cause it's so hard to find in a department store. Um, and so that's something that I would definitely recommend if you're a person who is out there and is frustrated, um, as you're trying to raise your Christian feminist kid, particularly, I think daughters, though, not only cause like Leah said, it's like all the boy stuff has like baseballs on it or, you know, or skulls for some strange yeah. reason. And like guitars. Um, and guitars, yes. Like they're all tattooed rockers or baseball players. It's very strange. So if you want something that's a little bit more, um, you know, less gendered um, or even just less um, themed, then primary could be a great resource. Um, I'm looking forward to getting some things for her from and for my sons from that website. So, um, well, we better close it out because we're getting a little over time. But um, thank you so much for going on this journey with us of talking about Christian feminist parenting today, listeners, as we said, when we post this on the website and the Facebook page, please, um, please join a dialogue on our Facebook page about this topic. Cause we would love to hear your ideas. Thank you. Um, also to Sheila and Leah for podcasting with me this week. I really appreciate you guys, uh, you guys doing this. Thanks Katie. It was really fun. Yeah. Thank you. It was wonderful. And, um, so, just thinking ahead to listeners, if you have any ideas, um, either on this topic or for anything else, um, you can always feel free to talk to us um, on our Facebook page. And thank you so much for listening to the Christian Feminist Podcast. We'd love to hear from you. Um, if you have topic reading recommendations, as I just said, um, for future shows, or if you just want to ask a question or drop us a line, you can do that at christianfeministpodcast at gmail.com. To get the show notes for this and other episodes, check out christianhumanist.org. Christian Feminist Podcast is a member of the Christian Humanist Podcast Network. Kristen Philippic is our publishing liaison, and Elizabeth Bremner is our intern. For Sheila Woodruff and Aaliyah Dana Grubbs, I'm Katie Grubbs. Tune in next time for an episode on Mike Pence and the Billy Graham rule. Until then, in essentials unity, in non-essentials liberty, and in all things love.